listening to right where you are sitting now. Hi, welcome to episode 45 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. Um, this is going to be a very brief intro and outro today. I'm ill. Anyway, um, yeah, here's the adverts. What's better than shooting the shit about the occult? Shooting it with us, of course. I'm Avayel, tender loving co-host of Outer Symmetry. If you're looking for a podcast that covers everything from Lady Gaga to the Montauk Monster, you're in the right place. Myself and my husband Adamus pull you down the rabbit hole with us twice a month to keep you informed and up to date on all the topics you want to know about. So sit down, tune in, and fade out. Subscribe to Outer Symmetry today. Eerie Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of, of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. Hi, we're back. And today we're talking to the first ever female guest we've ever had on the show. Uh, her name's Lucy Wyatt. She's the author of a new book called Approaching Chaos. Could an ancient archetype save the 21st century civilization? Uh, it's a great book. I recommend you uh, all check it out after listening to this interview. Um, hopefully it's going to be good fun. And hopefully my voice won't sound quite so crap. <laughs> okay, so I'll see you after that. Lucy Wyatt, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Um, it's great to have you on. Could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? Sure, Ken. Hi, really good to be with you too. Uh, well, I currently live in Suffolk. I used to live in Brighton because I was at Sussex University, which is kind of cool. But yeah. that was rather a long time ago. <laughs> um, I grew up in Cambridge where I was born and uh, first went to school. And then I'm, after Sussex, I moved to London. And then from London to Suffolk, where I sort of brought my family up, really. So I wanted my girls to have all the, the green and the mud <laughs> and, <laughs> and be proper English girls, mm-hmm. which they haven't thanked me for, really. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, at least I had somewhere to start. And Because, I mean, Cambridge, when I was living there, was a very rural place. I mean, when I was a child, there weren't even any restaurants in the town because everyone ate in college, so... You can see, if anybody knows Cambridge now, they can see how, how much that's changed. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I was there not so long ago, and it's uh, oh, quite so gentrified, isn't it? Oh, totally. It's a nightmare now. I don't I don't go there at all. It's just a big regional shopping centre. <laughs> yeah. I mean, can you imagine? No restaurants. There was the Blue Bourne Trinity Street, and that was about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, unbelievable. You know, so, um, yeah, no, I love living in Suffolk. I live not far from the coast. I'm about 10 minutes from the coast. And uh, a few years ago, like 10 years ago or more, we bought this small derelict farm, which was a perfect opportunity for doing an eco-project. 
because it had never been ruined by the 1960s. The house had never had electricity. So we would put all that in and use eco-friendly materials and a poo pond that digests all our poo and all this <laughs> thing. So it's incredibly exciting here. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, it's brilliant. We have um, we have a few. We still have a few animals around. Although I've now done a deal with my local farmer who who looks after those. We have cattle and sheep and pigs and you know whole nine yards. But it's a really pretty little site because it um, still has its sort of like ancient um, oak trees. We have six hundred year old oak trees and old hedgerows. And, and small field sizes. So it's a little bit of old England that we've uh, managed to hang on to. So you might be able to answer this. I've, I was asking a friend about this the other day. Is it true if you generate your own electricity, you have to feed some of it back into the national grid? Um, I don't think. No, you don't have to. Um, you don't have to send it back in. No, I mean oh, they right. don't pay okay, you very much for doing that. No, if you generate your own electricity, you can. You, you basically keep it yourself. Oh, right, okay. But <laughs> you do. But if you do have an arrangement with them, you get paid. So that's not bad. That's pretty good. I've yet, yeah. I've yet to do that because to do a proper gateway system, you have to pay lots of money. Whereas the feedback tariff isn't kind of based on actually feeding it back. It's a bit of a misnomer. Yeah, it's a bit strange. <laughs> it's very strange. You know, I haven't quite mastered that one. I've, I've yet to do to do that. I'm thinking about putting up a bank of PV panels to do the feeding tariff bit but yeah that's um, a pretty good idea yeah, I mean, we don't we don't run our own electricity all the time we just do it um every now and then and um and actually run into a bit of a problem because we use oilseed rape as our basic fuel and the price of that has gone through the roof and we didn't actually manage to grow any ourselves this year yeah. that's been rather painful that has yeah i can imagine <laughs> uh, just had the bill <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but hey what at least we can be a little bit independent yeah, you've just uh, you've uh, written a book called uh, "Approaching Chaos: Could an Ancient Archetype Save t uh, the 21st Century Civilization?" Um, yeah. Could you give us a brief overview of the book before we delve a little bit further? And why sure. does the why does the 21st century need saving? Well, I mean, the whole point is approaching chaos. I mean, you know, who know who knows when the balloon is going to go up? I mean, what what could happen to us? But there are plenty of historical examples where civilization has collapsed for one reason or or another. And what I mean by civilization is living in cities. Mm -hmm. I don't mean any other kind of civilization because that is what what civilization is all about. And so basically, I went back to the end of the Ice Age and looked at how civilization came about. And it isn't quite the story we've been told. So that was pretty interesting in itself. Uh, and I really wanted some answers. I mean, my original point of inquiry was to do with um, the background to alternative medicine. That's really what fired me up to begin with. Mm. And then as I dug around some more, I just realized there was this whole big story about civilization that hadn't really been told properly. I mean, lots of people like, you know, the wonderful Graham Hancock and others, it may give us lots of ideas but they don't really put much flesh on the bones and that's what I tried, tried to do mm -hmm. and I realised that there was this archetype this, this ancient archetype and anybody knows anything about archetypes you know Carl Jung was the, was the, the, the big expert on all, all of this is that they exist forever you know they're in the subconscious and you can tap into them forever and this particular archetype to do with city buildings is still there for us, um, but we kind of lost touch with aspects of it, and that's what I was interested in exploring. Yeah, you, you, you start the book by pointing out that modern civilizations' mindsets could be in the wrong place. So, could you talk a little bit about that? 
of course. Well, because the thing is, is that what you begin to realise is that we're completely driven by a whole thing whereby the end justifies the means. You know, we, we must destroy this piece of countryside because we must have this motorway in order to... Ju so that justifies all that, that terrible destruction because, you know, our economy is more important than a bit of beautiful countryside. You know, we must have a new runway for the airport. And, and we're totally governed by this. And what we forget is, well, what is the end anyway that we're trying to achieve apart from more money? And, and we forget that the means of achieving these ends are just as important as the ends themselves. And that's really what has, has um, changed so much from the ancient, ancient way of thinking. I mean, the Stoics, for example, really understood this. You know, Marcus Aurelius is my big, big pin-up, the Roman emperor who was the Stoic uh, philosopher as well, because he, he totally understood that it's, everything is connected. How you do something is as important as why you do something. The Native Americans have the same attitude. You know, we are of the earth, not on the earth. And, and we're all part of this big, big web of interconnection. And that's the kind of philosophy that we've really, really lost touch with because of our need to, to generate profits, you know, the profit drive, the profit motive. But I think that comes out of a Roman mindset where the power of Rome was, was much more important and, and people were sacrificed for the sake of the you know, discipline in the Roman army. That's what decimate means. It means to kill, literally kill every tenth soldier to improve de discipline. So we were prepared to sacrifice to make these gains and, and we're still in that kind of way of thinking and that's what I think needs to, needs to change really. Yeah, yeah. You talk. You spoke about an archetype earlier on. Um, yeah. Could you talk a bit about the actual archetype? You know, sort of describe it, as it were. Well, the best the best way I think of of seeing this archetype is to is to visualise um, a, a wheel, a wheel with um, or a big circle with eight segments, and to think of the colours of the rainbow plus white. So you get you get eight different different colours, and e each of these is a very important of the whole thing. And the point about it is is that the whole wheel is introduced as a piece. We've told ourselves the story that cities arrive out of a farming experiment. My research didn't actually back that up. I think the changes in farming happen because of cities and not the other way around. So I start the wheel with the colour red, and that's the colour to do with domesticated animals, because I think they were domesticated deliberately. I don't think it was evolutionary. I think they were genetically modified so that they could be made useful. And my own experience of having animals on the farm shows me that, that you can't breed docility. Docility is something that has to be implanted, really, to make them handleable. And then from red, I go to orange, which is a kind of government and infrastructure and, and surveying. Cities were properly surveyed, surveyed out from the beginning they weren't random organic structures that just grew around some marketing operation of trading surpluses that's not what happened they were either built in quarters or or in in grid irons or, or circles they were they were deliberately set out from the start and then for that I lead on in into trade which is yellow and there were contracts of, of, of trade that was a deliberate civilizing thing, not just stealing things from a booty point of view when you have warfare. And from there, the, the, the fresh food, the, the trading spices that leads to green, so fresh food and cuisine, cooking, cooking not just nuts and berries, but actually cooking on a scale like bakeries and breweries. In ancient Egypt, there are plenty of evidence of, of a huge scale of, of bakeries and breweries and things like that, and, and, and properly creating a cuisine using spices and, and things like this. That, that That's very much a civilizing thing, which I think we are in danger of losing now, because people forget how, how to cook. And from that to blue, which is arable, which is the water control of water, irrigation and, and dikes and drainage was all part of civilizing agriculture 
and from there to the the priesthood to to purple which is um the prediction of the weather patterns and and so forth and then from there indigo to to a kind of um esoteric communication communication of a very strange nature, the kind of out-of-body spiritual nature. That's mm. the bit we don't really understand. And and teaching and, and education comes into that. And then from there to through to white, which is about medicine and, and healing yourself and, and systematizing um, repertoire, reper, repertory, excuse me, repertories in terms of um, medical re- remedies. That was very much part of civilization. And, and the ancient Egypts had these papyruses that that are, are clearly set out in in, the, in that way. So that that's what I was identifying as the archetype, um, but I think it pre-existed the Egyptians. I think it was there much earlier. Mm. You, t- you spoke about, um, uh, in the wheel, the uh, being esotericism and mysticism. Yes. Um, why do you think it is that we don't know much about this <laughs> these days? I mean, this seems to be something, I mean, for example, spiritualism for example we don't seem to study it particularly why do you, do you think this is a, the fault of science or something or well i think i think what it i think it no i think there's a historical reason for this and i think the reason is to do with the fact that that the egyptians were very secretive and a lot of these rituals were very secretive uh, and i go into an alternative interpretation of what alchemy means mm. because i say that what alchemy is is i think it's based on an egyptian phrase um, the alchemy, the chemi meaning the fixed stars, and I think it actually means to astral plane to the to the fixed stars, and and that that the Greeks through whom we know so much about all of this only um, they misinterpreted so much. They only knew about certain aspects of things. I think all the Greeks saw was the actual preparation of gold as part of the the process of getting this out of body thing. So we think we associate alchemy with with things to do with gold. But there's more to it than that. And the Egyptians didn't actually want people to know their secrets because they were very powerful secrets. And in particular, they were really concerned to keep the Romans out of out of the whole thing. The Romans had no tradition of alchemy. They, they had no sympathy for alchemy. They destroyed works to do with alchemy and destroyed um, persecuted alchemists too. And and then after that, you get the overlay of, of the Catholic Church on top of that when the Romans get Christianity and the Christians get Romanized and, and all the rest of it. So those secrets got buried and went on underground. And I think it was very deliberate because you have to be a non-military type of organization to really appreciate all that powerful spirituality stuff. And the Romans weren't weren't those sort of people. Mm. And we are the descendants of the Romans, which is why I think for 1,500 or more years, these secrets have may, remained fairly buried, fairly mm. buried. I suppose you get certain like occult organizations these days that claim to, um, you know, be, uh, <clears throat> I guess, modernizing those... Uh, practices like uh I'm trying to think of some examples like the golden dorm or a classic uh british yes um yes. yeah this kind of hermeticism that kind of appears exactly. yeah exactly. We'll, talk, we'll talk about it a bit about that later because i know there's a whole section in the sure. book about hermeticism but uh exactly you talk in the book about the ur concept I, I believe that's how you pronounce it is it ur or the well, ur that's how you like but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well i thought that was just a kind of fairly interesting way of describing it meaning given that ur you are as far as I can see, has this meaning of foundation. And since this is an archetype about foundation, then I thought that was kind of a rather good way of, of, of describing it because um, it's a word that links back to an ancient language which which portrays that whole 
fundamental aspect of things and that's really what we need to reconnect with mm, definitely well, one part of the book i found um particularly interesting is a section where you, you i think you've mentioned it briefly already it's just the um you sort of posit that farming may not be the birth of civilization and inst- instead it was mountain life uh, yeah could you talk a bit about that that's really interesting that section well, the point, the point about all of that is that we're led to believe that there's this kind of whole progressive thing of people being up in mountains, and that's where the earliest um, trials, experiments to do with farming take place. But actually, mountains are an appalling place to have a, um, an agricultural experiment. You know, the soil is very poor and yields be very poor, and it makes no sense from an agricultural point of view at all. I mean, what you want to be is in a nice fertile valley with a, with a good river, and, and that's really why you want to do agriculture. But no, about seven or 8,000 BC or whatever, particularly in parts of... Well, the, the Golden Crescent really stretches from Turkey all the way through to I- Iran. But in, so in parts of the Taurus Mountains, um, you have Chatelhuyuk, which is um, in Anatolia in Turkey, uh, which is an ancient settlement where there's very obvious examples of storage buildings um, where I think that these there was a whole chain of these um, that to do with the Halafian civilization. And I think that they were very obviously um, storage in order to support operations elsewhere. I mean, you know, one has to take a fairly pragmatic view of this. Why would people do this? And the only reason they would do it is because they needed the food in order to be able to carry out certain activities in mountains. What do mountains have? They have minerals, they have metals, they have things that are useful. And this is the thing that lots of people have missed. You know, they say, oh yes, mountains, um, the earliest pottery, the earliest metal, the earliest agriculture, start a civilization. Rubbish. I mean, that's just, it just doesn't stack up. I mean, the point is, is that whoever these people were, they obviously had cities somewhere else of which there is no evidence still existing of of them. They certainly knew certain techniques and what to do, and they knew what they were looking for. The thing that made the hair stand on the back of my neck was when I realized that things like the earliest uh, sites for pottery, the place in, in the Zagros Mountains in Iran, were also near some of the earliest um, gold routes. This connection with gold, which crops up again and again throughout that cold Golden Crescent um, area, is, is just remarkable. So I knew I was onto, onto something fairly firm there. Mm, yeah, and gold, uh, again, it seems to be something that pops up time and time again i know graham hancock talks about gold um, yes um could you talk a little bit about kind of in the book you talk about gold as well why is this so important when we look at understanding uh kind of these these this civilization you speak sure. of? yeah well i mean you can see this also in, in central and southern america too can't you in, mm. you, you know the, the amounts of gold that you find referred to in cusco or where wherever it is over over there. I mean, basically what I did was to extrapolate backwards to the Egyptians because I understand there's much more written about the Egyptians, much more evidence of, of all these sort of things. And I basically came to the conclusion that this is, this is why the whole alchemy thing is so important. And that is actually um, the reason why they were in the mountains in the first place is because they needed the gold for their rituals. They needed, to, they needed it for, for this, um, to create this kind of, powder is what I think they were doing. I think they were creating monatomic gold um, as part of the alchemical um, process and and that they were then using for their out-of-body experiences, for their shamanic rituals. But you can only understand that if you have a fairly clear idea of what the Egyptians were up to. And I just think that the Mesopotamians or the earlier people from the Mesopotamians, those that were in the Golden Crescent, seven, eight thousand 
BC, ESBC were doing the same thing. So that that's why I think gold, it wasn't just for decoration. It, it was more than that. It was because it has these properties of, these levitational properties, one's led to believe. I mm. mean, that, that's what I think it was all about. So do you think, um, uh, do you have any idea of, like who this civilization might have been um no no, no i don't <laughs> and i also don't really want to speculate either i mean you know people write about atlantis or or lemuria or, or whatever i decided in my book that i wouldn't go down that road because what i wanted to do in my book was to look at what was really firmly available what was actual fairly firm evidence you know i didn't really want to get into the role of too much spec speculation i mean i'm quite happy to make correlations and make connections between things and, and put forward proposals but I actually wanted to base it on on fairly firm facts so where these these people came from I wouldn't wouldn't really like to say but I'm fairly sure that there there was an, an elite and I did actually delete from my book references to um, the eggheads the guys <laughs> with the big skulls because mm. some of my friends who read early drafts got a bit kind of spooked by that <laughs> but I'm um, I mean you, you know you look at Central and Southern America where you find these um, mummies that have been buried you know with these enormous skulls and and the same the same kind of head shapes were around in Egypt and and possibly in in the Golden Golden Crescent too um, and so there really wasn't an elite that knew what to do. I don't think it was locals who were discovering these things at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In the uh, book, you talk about um, the hunter-gatherer versus uh, farming uh, yes. civilization. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, the thing is, is that we're sort of we're sort of fed this line that somehow moving to cities is progress, and, and that and that hunter-gatherers are frightfully barbaric and, and, and all, all the rest of it. But actually the evidence does show that hunter-gatherers by and large had a much higher standard of health, which may surprise some people because, you know, we're so thinking we're, we're so much the better alternative to it. And, uh, you know, civilization is not innate. You, you, you know, we're not, we're not born with it, with a sense of it. And I think you can see certain parts of British society descending back into hunter-gathering, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> I think it's fairly genetic, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, the civilized arts of reading, writing and cooking are being lost in various bits mm. It's our, our, current, our current society. Reality TV, that could be, uh, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> They're quite happy to, to kind of go around in gangs and, and uh, sort of, you know, do that bit of hunter-gathering off-legal off limits. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so 3195 BC, why is this date important and what do you think happened? That date was really key because I think it was a major global catastrophe uh, the actual cause of it isn't totally established, but it could have been an asteroid or something like that hitting hitting the world and causing a massive wobble. And I think it may even be the thing that was behind the floods, the the real flood stories, because it could have been the thing when rivers burst their banks. And and what seems to have happened is in certain parts of the world, um, beaches got um, longer, and in other parts of the world. Uh, forest disappeared into into the sea very suddenly. I mean, this this is the the, the interesting part about it. You know, these these submerged forests didn't have time to decay; they were very quickly swamped, mm. which suggests that there was this this massive massive global global move. Um, and what that did is it obviously absolutely terrified everybody who was a, around at the time. 
and I think that they then went looking for safe havens. Uh, there was a huge um, dis diaspora. The massive migration started after that date. Um, in, in particular, the Indo-Europeans, um, the proto-Indo-Europeans started to, to move out of their, their homeland and to split up into their tribes and look for new homelands and started on the process of ending up where they ended up as Greeks in Greece and Celts in basic parts of Ireland or wherever and the, the Romans in, in Italy. That, but that was much later. I mean, it was a very gradual process of them finding their new homelands. And it also took the city builders out of the cities too. I mean, they left Mesopotamia and went to look for a new new place um, or revisit um, an existing place, which was Egypt. And Egypt is interesting. I think the attraction of Egypt is that it was on a line of neutrality where there was neither um, up nor down. And um, But it wasn't particularly attractive from a climatic point of view because it's after that point that um, the ancient um, savannas and uh, forests that had existed in certain places suddenly became desert. Uh, they started de desertification happened after that point. So the Thar Desert, the Gobi Desert, and all the desert in, in Egypt started to appear after, after that point. So Egypt wasn't attractive from, from that perspective because there was only then this narrow strip of fertility either side of the Nile but it was attractive from a point of view of they felt safer. So that's why that date was so critical, because after that point that we see the Egypt that we're so familiar with appear, the, mm. the dynastic e Egypt uh, uh, appears. But, um, but they may have been recolonizing. You know, it could be if the ideas about the Sphinx being so ancient and that being a, a, a predating marker, um, it could be that they were returning to Egypt rather than actually starting it up um, from scratch. Hmm. Now, Egypt plays an important role in the book, and you can make you make some interesting connections between Judaism and uh, the ancient Egyptians. Can you talk about that? Well, what what it, the thing that I became very struck by was what were the origins of um, monotheism, really, hmm. and and what was the connection between the 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 Jews, the Hebrews in Egypt and religion and the more I dug about it became very apparent to me that when the Hebrews arrived in, in Egypt uh, they didn't necessarily have the worship of one God at that time and then I became more um, conscious of um, the beliefs and changes that the so-called heretic Pharaoh Akhenaten introduced where he closed down uh, many of the temples, all of the temples, created a new mm. city at Telamana, Akitatan, and encouraged belief in the power behind the sun in, in yeah. the We just spoke um, with uh, Gregory Sams about that very subject in the last well, episode. Exactly. <laughs> it's all to do with worship of the sun, and, mm. and this is well, not so directly worship, but veneration of of of, of the sun. Mm. And the thing that's not really explained to us is the very close connection between various um, Hebrews, various Jews, and the household of Akhenaten. Mm. I mean, we, 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 we know about Joseph coming to, to Egypt, you know, to, to kind of educate the pharaoh or whatever. But there were other very senior um, Jews in, in the Egyptian uh, royal household, and we're not really told about those. So... I also came across the work of an Egyptian writer called Ahmed Osman, who, who puts together, very, I think, a very convincing case 
for saying that um, Tutmosis III, the Egyptian pharaoh, and Akinat, Ak Amenhotep IV um, were actually um, the real Jewish uh, kings of David and Solomon. In fact, that they, he says they weren't Jewish at all. They were actually these pharaohs. And he puts forward a very, very solid case for that. Um, because it doesn't the, the the interpretation we're given doesn't really really stack up. So there's this very interesting kind of cross cultural links between the two, and mm. we're not really we're led to believe that it's only the Jews who have this true knowledge, and only they forged a link with the one God, the true God, and you know, these brave people that crossed all the way down from you know northern Syria to to bring this knowledge to the Egyptians and put them straight and it doesn't actually stack up as far as I can see yeah it's interesting I mean if you look at some of um, uh, Jewish traditions like Kabbalah or Tarot these are both things that allegedly uh, were shared with the Egyptians as well which is an interesting connection I thought well, absolutely, and uh, or was it the other way around? I yeah. mean, particularly, particularly the tarot, I do, I do find that fascinating, and I do think that the tarot um, contains within it an awful lot of hermetic philosophy, mm -hmm. um, and it, and I think it was developed as a as a hermetic teaching tool, actually. Um, uh, I mean, I don't, I, can't, I think I deleted it from the book, but I did work out a very interesting connection between the tarot and and gypsies do with the Romanies um, which comes in later because I think there was a link between the Knights Templar and being in Jerusalem and these um, these um, camp followers of these Punjabi mercenaries who, who came west uh, which were the actual original um, gypsies and they encountered the um, Knights Templar in Jerusalem because they needed help with their horses because they were very good horsemen and that's you know gypsies still have a very close affinity with with horses and i think that's where they picked up the tarot but that's just my own personal view yeah that's no, uh, <laughs> that an interesting little sideline yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> and before we go on to looking at the bronze age and the iron age i'd like to very quickly talk with you you, you speak about shamans in the book and sh shamanism yes. and you, yeah. you say that uh shamans may have accrued scientific knowledge how is this well we 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 have the idea that knowledge, um, especially scientific knowledge, comes through experimentation, and we build up a kind of body of trial and error, and that's how we get to know what what we know. But actually, there are other ways of accessing knowledge, and quite a few of our even of our own modern scientists have had moments of of extraordinary uh, eureka moments of illumination. Or where they've um, visualised something and it's true, it's found to be true, and I think that um, there is very little evidence for saying in the ancient world that they discovered things through trial and error, because often they were using poisons, poisonous plants, from which there is no possibility of experimentation, because you use the wrong one and you're dead, and you can't come back and say, oh, that didn't really work. So I think what they what they were accessing was this out-of-body stuff of communicating with with the spirit world and there and thereby picking up actual knowledge of how to live and what to do and how to organize themselves and that was their understanding of of science and it was scientific knowledge there that the stuff that they were they were discovering but not in the sense that we know it because we have to have this thing of triple blind tests and and mm -hmm. all all the rest of it which i mean to, to my way of thinking doesn't always stack up and we sometimes miss 
miss stuff that is useful to us because it doesn't fit into that particular way of testing things. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. We take, you know, homeopathy for an example, for example. Yeah, there's a constant battle between homeopathy and scepticism, isn't there? <laughs> well, no, because you can't test it in the normal, normal scientific way, but it's no less not knowledge. I mean, science is, science is a word that means knowledge. Hmm. And if it's knowledge that's useful, that it works, that you can repeat it to a certain extent, you should take notice of it. I mean, quantum physics doesn't actually fit into a standard test. This is the thing that they forget. <laughs> you can't always repeat the same experiment and you can't do quantum physics experiments with, with different experimenters. Hmm. You know, it goes differently for different people. How's that kind of reliably scientific? <laughs> yeah, it's true. Right, so why was the change from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age a step backward? Well, the most significant aspect of that is actually in the names Bronze and Iron because Iron is a much simpler um, metal to to use. So it doesn't really make any sense that um, they had this more complicated alloy, which was copper, tin or other combinations. They knew which which quantities to combine it in. The copper and the tin were actually were from physically very remotely different separated geographic locations you know for example copper might come from cyprus tin might come from cornwall so to know to put them together isn't exactly again i mean to repeat what i said earlier as a result of an experimentation whereas iron is just a question of smelting or at very high temperatures and they could already do very high temperatures from a very long time back so that's why, in a sense, they were reverting to a much simpler kind of technology. But that in itself was significant as to who had this technology. It was the Hittites, who were an Indo-European um, group of people, who actually found the knowledge of, of iron and a nastier, nastier kind of weapon, as it were. And when the dreadful catastrophe that brought about the Iron Age occurred in around 1200 BC, um, there were these awful um, events where many cities were burnt and the eastern Mediterranean was ravaged by the sea peoples and and for a long time there was there was great um, tra tragedy and, and dis distress and it's after that that Egypt starts to decline so it, it all begins to, to slightly unravel at this point and it's at that point that the Indo-European tribes in particular the Greeks and the Romans start to, to to, to come into their own. I mean, the Romans don't become Roman until about 700 BC. So if they were in Troy, if their ancestor really was Aeneas, there's a gap of about three or 400 years before they arrive on, on the Tiber. But nevertheless, these these um, currents, as it were, are coming from the east to to the west. And certainly the Greeks were around um, in, in on that um, western coast of Turkey. At, at the time and they they possibly were the original sea peoples creating all this this havoc because um, there were a lot of famines that, that occurred there was a big volcanic um, eruption in 1200 possibly a, an ice another Icelandic volcano <laughs> the Hecla volcano that caused all this problem you know 20 years of famine or whatever and and so that's that's when people started to to become very fearful and knowledge started to be more highly protected and Egypt, the Egyptians knew literally the writing was on the wall um, and it's not long after that, about 600 BC, that the Persians started to invade Egypt. They 
became under attack from these various Indo-European groups, 333 BC, Alexander the Great, the Greek um, invades Egypt. Um, the Romans are trying to get in there. They don't make it until Antony and Cleopatra and whenever it was, 33 BC or, or whatever. But the pressure is on and that's when Egypt starts to really de decline. Um, hmm. and, and that's really why it's a step, step backwards. Now, do you think um, <clears throat> that religion, organised religion, has a role in the downfall of civilization? Oh, very, very, very much so. Very much so. Because what what basically happened, especially around the fourth century A AD, which is around the time that um, the Romans got Christianity or became Christianized, and um, the Emperor Constantine could see the political advantages of uh, uniting everybody under the banner of, of, of one, one God. And, um, and so he allowed the Catholic Church to create like a, a mini state within a state. It was a very interesting kind of parallel uh, state that was, was going, political unit that was going on um, inside Rome. Um, he allowed the Catholic Church to set its own laws. He allowed them to create, um, generate their own taxes and to administer themselves and then after that there was this issue of where did the emperor stand in all this was he above the church was he of the church where did he stand legally could he be excommunicated and they decided that he could so it was a really fascinating infiltration of of, uh, of a of a state of a political um, um state um, unit you know which was the the Ro city of rome and the roman empire and and that really was was the sort of the beginning of the end, really. Hmm. So in the book, you talk about the uh, the secret history of the Catholic Church, um, but I thought it was always I've always thought it was decided at the Council of Nicaea. But uh, yeah. <laughs> How do you mean exactly? I mean, the Council of Nicaea, Constantine, um, he wanted to settle this thing called the Arian dispute. Mm. Which was, you know, was Jesus of God or Son of God or yeah, was Trinity was decided and, and, yeah. and all of all of that. Hmm. And but he he wanted that decided for for political reasons. Yeah, it, you know, because there was this there was this big um, competition between um, the church in Rome, the church in Alexandria, and the church in in what then became Constantinople, which is hmm. basically Constantine's new city. It's what Constantinople means. Yeah, yeah. And um, so he, he, he was the instigator of the Council of, of Nicaea. And um, so, you know, that is really down, down to him that that, 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 all, mm. that that all happened. Yeah, because um, the Catholic Church at that point was more of a, it was almost like a cult, wasn't it? A, a, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yes. But it was a cult that had this useful thing of, of unifying everything under one banner. Yeah. Where it became dangerous for us is was the effect on the, our intellectual life. And I'm, I'm not the only one to have written about the 4th century um, AD as being the time when the Western mind started to close. Because what was so interesting was that the Catholic Church, they, they weren't interested in reason, they were only interested in faith, and they weren't interested, they controlled very tightly who could become a member of their church. So mm. no teachers, no actors, nobody that could challenge them. They weren't interested in being challenged at all. They literally came in through the back door. They recruited domestic servants and wives. And Constantine was very influenced by his wife and his mother. And so it really was a very curious way that this cult was able to establish itself so 
so successfully. And, and I mean, if Constantine hadn't decided to do what he did, it's very doubtful that the cult would have would have survived. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's interesting that the Catholic Church always seems to remain the most kind of a cult-like even now. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's amazing yeah. that it, it kind of it's survived in some ways. You know, it's uh, well, also what, what's kind of what another parallel I found completely fascinating is when the Roman Empire did finally collapse. It was the Catholic Church that stepped into the political vacuum. It was Pope Leo, whatever it was, who took on all the the physical trappings of an emperor. You know, he the you you think of the design of of um, Byzantine churches with the great apse, and it's like a triumphal arch of, of crowning an emperor. He had the ring, the fan, the shoes, and and the way it was organised in in many respects. You know, people paid the church, gave the church lots of money. So that's like taking in booty. Um, people enslaved themselves, you know, be- becoming monks and so forth. No different from from the slavery that had happened under the Roman Empire. And he he very much filled filled that gap while um, the Holy Roman Emperor and all the rest it started to sort sort themselves out. But but it was it did become pretty much a political structure. But it had this huge stranglehold over knowledge, and that was the really scary thing. And mm. in my view, in my view, the ancients knew certain things, like they knew the world was round, and they knew that the earth went round the sun, but but they lost that knowledge, and the church didn't allow that knowledge to be re- rediscovered. I mean, it was only really at the time of the Renaissance that it was severely challenged. Mm. And so there was this dread, I think, a total dark age in terms of in terms of knowledge and understanding of the physical world and that to to my way of thinking is entirely due to the to the suppression um and the control that 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 this theocratic regime you know had over over everybody because they wanted to control your soul and they wanted to be the only thing that can communicate with with god so no shamanic ritual, all of that, and all alchemy, all of that was completely witchcraft. That was, you know, the great god Pan becomes um, the devil, and and all these things are demonized. You know, the Egyptian god Thoth is demonized. <laughs> I mean, this is outrageous. Yeah. And, and so this is, they wanted to particularly break that link between nature and religion as well. That's, you know, very key. And churchyards, which have... Um, the area that we now consider to be graveyards was actually places, the Temenos, for dancing. So they turned these places into places of sorrow. And one of the things that I do draw really strong parallels between is the Egyptian Hall of Judgment, uh, when the soul is taken to be judged, and the medieval doom paintings, um, and to do with the fact that the in the 2nd century AD, Oregon, the church, early church father, deliberately destroyed any knowledge of reincarnation mm. and he and introduced the doctrine of purgatory so that sinners might taste something bitter this was deliberate deliberate control and it's created so much separation and so much anguish and so much distress in the west and i think is at the source of a lot of our mental illness today actually mm. i really do i think it's been so severe all, all, all of that loss of knowledge yeah and i know a lot of um people talk about uh, 2012 for example being a uh, uh the beginning of a new era or you know whatever it is <laughs> there's so many yeah. different theories i've got literally a pile of books i've been sent it's over the it. years <laughs> 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 um, but 
I don't know. I, I'd like to imagine that it will be the day that the Catholic Church falls. <laughs> That's something I personally you know. Like finally, with the grip because it still does have a grip. Um, and, it does. Know, yeah, it and, does. But I do. I mean, particularly in this country, you know, it, people are challenging it. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, England. They say it's been de-Christianized now. Which well, is, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, the only slight problem is is that we're now given the only people as being the alternative is some sort of secular thing or pagan thing or or whatever it is, but. But actually, what we really need to reconnect with is much more this ancient religion that understood that certain... Celsus, who Oregon was very condemning of, he he was a a Greek writer in the second century AD. Now, he says that the Egyptians, they didn't worship a cat. What they did is they recognized that the cat... It, it it kind of um, was a symbol of of certain principles and and that helped them to understand certain stories or the cow god Hathor. If you understand Hathor, she's not just cowness; she is actually has a role to play in in and so you're venerating the role that she plays in in certain processes. So it was a way of explaining the world to to look at these different aspects of of spirituality or or spirit, or, or divine essence, or whatever you want to, to call it. And the point is is that, that because they recognize these different deities and these different things, the god of the Nile or whatever, they were much more respectful of these things. And that's what we've lost. We've lost that sense of respect because we don't care about nature, spirits, and, and we'll cut down mm. that. We yeah. don't give a stuff. It's just a tree. But, but because they understood how it all interconnected and what that particular role was you know they didn't they wouldn't treat the the world the way we do yeah it's interesting because I mean, gregory sam says something very similar and he uh points at monotheism being the um you know the kind of tipping point of when that happened and yeah how back you know during polytheism Quite. people were a lot more connected and seemed to be a bit more in touch with things it's an interesting that this absolutely is, yeah and also that time when Akhenaten um introduced that um power of the of the art of the sun thing and closed down all those temples i think he then discovered politics because mm. then what happened was instead of having all these temples which were roughly balanced because yes i'm no more important than you i look after hathor and you look after thoth and all the rest of it. They were then com- the priests were then all competing with each other. Yeah. I think he created a, a a political problem, and 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 that's kind of interesting. Um, you, you know, and it's the same problem in the in the early Catholic Church because when you have um, a, a hierarchy of of um, divine beings, then nobody's trying to compete for for anything and just with the one powerful universal spirit. But when you have um, only one person allowed to interpret the truth, i.e. the Pope and a hierarchy of priests underneath you, that's when you, you start to go wrong because uh, who, who interprets the truth? Hmm. You know, what, 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 is, what is the truth? It's just what one person says it is. <laughs> you know, and now it's what one Ayatollah says or one you know, Imam says. Well, this is, this is no, no way to the truth. No. So we, we all need to have different views. And, and, but that polytheism allows for, for, for that broader interpretation. Yeah, definitely. Now, I, mean, going, I mean, sort of staying with the Egyptians again for a, a little while. The, um, I've, whenever I, I speak to anyone that kind of studied Egyptology or whatever in any way, I always ask them like, the, the obvious questions. How do you think the pyramids were built? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, when you mean in terms of moving the big stones? Yeah, yeah. 
that, that tricky, that old chestnut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, um, well, I, I do think, I do think there's, there's sort of two possible different things about that. I think there's a possibly one technique for actually creating all that limestone that's the big blocks that actually makes up the pyramid. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about the Great Pyramid here yeah, yeah. at Giza. Um, but I do think that that's one thing. But I think the second thing is, I think there's a quite different thing to do with the granite that's in the king's chamber. And I think that they're two different techniques and two different stones. I think there probably is a very good case for suggesting that the limestone that makes up the steps of the pyramid, you know, the big blocks that create the actual thing, that that could have been a kind of um, poured um, pulverized stone and poured into moulds. And I do think there's there's probably a very good case for, for saying that that's, that's what happened. But I don't think that explains how the granite in the king's chamber um, got there. And they are huge blocks of granite. And I have been to the quarry in Aswan, which is um, 500 miles away. And I don't think that that was pulled by thousands <laughs> of slaves. Um, I don't think it's possible to do that across sand. Um, they may have been floated up the Nile, it's possible. But even so, how you get them from the quarry um, to the Nile, that's still an issue. And how you get them from the Nile to, to the Giza Plateau is another issue. Um, so I do think that there is a very good case for saying that, that they possibly did have some way of um, interfering at a subatomic level with gravity in the sense of um, maybe using something like magnets or something. Cause, you know, magnets, if you put them in the right way, do repel each other, as in a maglev train, um, modern trains in Japan you know, diff- um, um, same poles you know, r- repel. So, or they may have used sound. Um, then you have to possibly interfere at a sub-molecular level using harmonics. I don't know. The- these are our realms of, of speculation. But I do, I do think that, that the Egyptians had a very profound sense of something to do with sub-molecular stuff. And I do write about quantum physics in, in, in the book because... I think that they had an idea of fundamental energy flows, you know, mm. the whole energy equals mass um, times speed of light or whatever, you know, the Einstein thing. I think that they did know that you could reverse that and that you could kind of, you know, that mass is energy. Mm. Uh, and I think that they they understood understood that. It's quite hard to to prove it, but my sense of it is is that they had an um, intuitive understanding of it and that they could they knew it was possible to manipulate these things that's the point yeah I've, I've seen part of their secrets i've seen theories floating around that um the egyptians might have also had the ability to create electricity yes yes so. i'm sure of that i'm mm. fairly sure of that um i mean there's the thing like the baghdad battery that was discovered that's just basically some electrodes and some vinegar and and away you away you go but that's quite small scale um and i do think that there's a very good case for saying something like the Ark of the Covenant was um, an electrical capacitator. Mm. And I have seen those extraordinary um, reliefs in the crypt at Dendra in Egypt at the Temple of Hathor. Oh, the big bulb things. Yes, yeah. I've seen those. They're amazing. Yeah. And I have no doubt that they possibly are some kind of electrical device. Mm. You know? and, I do, and I do make the connection between um, electricity and powdered gold 
things that alch modern alchemists have written about using electricity to create the Philosopher's Stone, mm. the fact that, um, that gold was another name for the, the cow goddess Hathor, that these things are in her temple at Dendra, and the fact that Flinders Petrie found all that powder under slabs in her um, temple in the Sinai Peninsula at Sarabit el Khadim. So I think there's this is um, these are coincidences that should be taken very seriously. You know, I think that they do they do indicate that there is some um, connection between all these things. Yeah. Now, one part of the book that really interested me and um, something we talk about a lot is hermeticism, and uh, yeah. you make a connection between kind of magic and quantum physics. Could you t uh, sort of talk about that a bit for us? Well, the thing is, is that. We have this very limited understanding of what magic is. We think it's just about tricks. But, but magic actually is at different levels. And that's just one level of, of magic. And the, the ancients had a much deeper understanding of magic as being a very transcendental, transformative kind of influence that you draw down and, and that changes, changes something. And that is part of their connecting to, to the spirit world and, and, and so forth. Um, this idea of um, the hecker priest, where we get our word hex from, we see it as a negative, but they didn't see it as positive or negative. They just saw it as, as a kind of force. Mm. And they, their whole idea was that you could interact as above, so below with, with um, the spirit world, with um, divine, divine sources. And so they didn't see themselves as being outside knowledge. They saw themselves, the inquirer was very much part of the whole, whole process. So in terms of, of, of their access to this magical scientific thing, they just saw it as, as, as all of one piece. Mm. And I mean, this is the kind of thing that was then continued by Crowley and the Golden Dawn and, yes. and so forth. But also the thing is, is that the modern modern experiments to do with quantum physics have also shown that the experimenter is very much part of the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that's completely, completely fascinating. Like Schrodinger's cat example. Schrodinger's yeah. cat, Froelich's principle of, of non-locality. You know, all all of all of these all of these things because modern quantum physics recognizes that something can be in two places at once, which is what the ancients kind of understood because they understood it was all part of being in the field the field of of energy and they they had an intuitive un understanding of that so i think they they knew how to create places where that could could happen but the point is is that they didn't necessarily well they may have used lasers i don't know but they but they um they only really used it for ritual and so it was very limited you know they didn't have all the technological applications that that we have in our in our modern day you know you don't find toasters in ancient egypt <laughs> um, so it was their use of electricity and their use of these fundamental processes was very restricted to the secretive um, priesthood and i think it was all about the initiation of the pharaoh of the educating of the certain um, priesthood and the continuation of of that and accessing knowledge all the time because they they didn't write much down you know it was all memorized and so they obviously needed to have these techniques to constantly re re access mm. information yeah now in the book <clears throat> um towards the end especially you talk about uh 
preparing for a massive global change. Could you talk about well, what you think that change might be? I know it's a bit speculative. Well, it isn't, isn't easy to say. Um, <laughs> I mean, you, you know, who, we can, lots of us can sense that something is going to happen, whether it's 2012 or, or whatever it's going to be. I mean, my own feeling, and I think Gregory Sams is possibly in the same view, um, is it could be something like a repeat of the 1859 Carrington event, which was a massive solar, um, a coronal mass ejection of the sun, mm. um, huge um, uh, uh, solar solar storm, um, like great big aurora borealis uh, that basically knocked out uh, electrical supplies in 1859. If that was to happen on the scale today, then it didn't matter because there's only a few telegraph lines, but if it was to happen on the scale today, what the American Academies of Science have said in 2008 is that it would take four to ten years to repair the grid. Mm. No electricity for four to ten years. That's a pretty serious situation. Yeah. We forget peak oil, forget climate change, forget all of those. You know, that's the big one. That's the one to get really kind of worried about. Because the thing that I can't help um, noticing is that we're so infrastructure dependent. Mm. We're so vulnerable. We so take it all for granted. And it doesn't matter what the infrastructure is, whether it's electricity, whether it's water supplies, whether it's roads, whatever it is. I mean, we've almost created a society, a civilization, where the end is to create infrastructure, whereas infrastructure should be the means to us enjoying life. Yeah. But instead, it's in our faces, everywhere. Now, you, can't, you can barely find a spot on this, this crowded island where you can't hear a road, let alone see a road. Hmm, You can see, you know, cables everywhere. You can see, you can see our infrastructure, planes flying over. So, like, what is this all about? Where are we actually heading in this this sense? So, you know, whether it's, um, whether it's the magnetic poles changing, I don't know, there's different views. The scientists seem to think that that would take quite a long time and we wouldn't necessarily notice a very quick effect. Quickly that. reverse our iPhones. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Um, but um, the, 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 the big the blur big from the sun, the big coronal mass ejection, I mean, that would take place very fast and we'd lock out all our GPS. So how would anybody find a supermarket, let alone <laughs> any lights on because they're all terrified of the dark. So... I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's back to basics, isn't it? That's yeah, that. yeah. I mean, yeah. and that's in a way that's the sort of solution you kind of uh, give in the book as well, isn't it? You talk about kind of eco solutions and yes, so forth. Yeah, yes. because the thing that I really want to get across, Ken, the thing I really want to get across is that if something like that happened, it's not going back to the cave. We no longer have the skills to survive in a cave. Mm. No, it's. I mean, we go back to beyond zero. But the point is, is that what we would want to do, what we would need to do is reconstruct cities. We need to reconstruct civilization. You know, you can go back to basics, but you can also be civilized. That's my point. Mm. My point is that the people in the ancient past lived at a certain standard of living, perfectly good standard of living, in certain amount of comfort in cities, but without all the disrespect that we have. They still respected their environment. Mm. That's the compromise that we need to rediscover again. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, Lucy. It's been great, actually. Yeah, it's been it's been fun. Um, could you, uh, if people want to find out more about you, where can they find you on the web? Oh, I have a website which is um, www.approachingchaos.co.uk, and that's got on there. I am talking at various events um, like Realco and um, 
the Wiltshire Crop Circles um, Studies Conference in August and various various others. Uh, Megalithomania in um, Glastonbury in May. I should be there, along with various others like John Major Jenkins. Yeah, I think I'm, I think we might be covering that. Actually, we might be coming along and interviewing people. So get to meet oh, you. Like, meet you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Even better. Yeah. So you know, um, I am I am out there, and anybody's very welcome to e- email me. And my book is available is available on Amazon. Um, so um, you and know, that's approaching chaos. The book. Chaos. That's yeah. right. Excellent. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's, Thank uh, you. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks a lot for that. That's great. <laughs> so.
for another SoundCloud specimen. It's kind of a weird one to say. I miss MySpace heroes. It was so much easier to say. Anyway, I uh, hope you enjoyed the interview with Lucy. Um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Hopefully I won't feel quite so rough and we'll talk a bit more and I'll have a co-host as well. <laughs> Which I say all too often these days. So, yeah, stick around. Check us out on sittingnow.co.uk. Uh, this is episode 45 of that implies there's 44 more shows so you can go back into the podcast uh, sections in uh, sittingnow.co.uk and also uh, for some of the more recent shows at alterati.com where we're uh, syndicated so uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks Um, Behind Closed Doors will be out the the next Monday uh, on Alterati and Sitting Now and uh, yeah we'll see you in a couple of weeks bye